All of the opinions expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not intended to offend or disrespect any of the parties involved. We're just two people who know how to research stuff on Google then talk about it. We don't have any legal education and therefore shouldn't be taken too seriously. So don't try to sue us. We couldn't afford to pay you anyway. Additionally, this podcast is about murder and will probably contain many other adult themes. So if that's not your thing, probably gonna have a bad time. So listen at your own risk. This is the part where we shamelessly plug our social media that I can never remember. Take it away, Mike. So don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at allegedly underscore pod. Find us on Facebook at that allegedly podcast and email us at that allegedly podcast at gmail.com. So pull up a chair, grab a snicky snack, and enjoy this week's episode of Allegedly. Allegedly. Two best friends and true crime with Mike and Heather, it's Allegedly time. Welcome back to Allegedly, the show where your gracious host gave you the wonderful Christmas present of a two-part episode special on the John Bonet Ramsey case. And yet, we've received no Christmas gifts in the mail. All we wanted were onesies with butt flaps, and the only gift we got this Christmas was that they finally cracked a Zodiac cipher. Santa delivered. He Our sure did. did not. No, they are ungrateful. Ungrateful. But... I'm still Heather. And I'm still Mike. And this week, we are going to be covering the disappearance and alleged murder of michelle harris alleged nobody no crime sean that's right do you watch psych no oh, we've man. had this conversation I know, many but times i thought we were gonna have a moment because i forgot that you are not cool so that's fine. yeah not watching psych makes me not cool it's a great show okay okay didn't i like let you know when i found out they were making like another tv movie for it Yes. Like, I saw the headline and I sent it to you right away, right? You did. So, I'm supporting you being a nerd. Yeah. Why do you have to attack Almost me for not sharing it? you send me it? the Zodiac Cypher. That's true. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. So, let's see. We're actually... Okay. Well, obviously, we're recording this after the Zodiac Cypher has come out. But right. the day that you sent it to me, I was at the table playing a board game with friends. And... <laughs> when you say a board game with friends, were you playing Dungeons & Dragons? No, it was Arkham Horror, but incredibly similar. Oh. It's just... <laughs> I'm sorry I asked. Anyway... And, like, you sent the text, and I literally went, oh, my God, <laughs> and got up from the table, and I was like, the Zodiac Cypher has been, has been cracked. And then I was, like, looking at the news of all of that, and then I saw, did I even text you this back, that they are going to try to resentence Scott Peterson to death. Yeah, you did tell me that. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to have, we got to anyway, talk about updates. that one. We got to talk about that one for sure. Yeah. Maybe yeah, so, we'll have to do some sort of like minisodes, like trying to keep up with the times and like know, stuff that's going on. Let's not lock ourselves down into any more of a time well, yeah, commitment. Yeah, because the Alyssa Turney case is also catching fire. All right, you're getting a little out of hand. So, so anyway, when I texted you about the Zodiac Cipher, also one of my coworkers who listens to this podcast, and she's probably listening right now. Hi, Kaysen. Hi, Kaysen. I don't know you, <laughs> I but ran, I love you. <laughs> I ran directly to her desk, and I was like, they just cracked a Zodiac Cipher. And she's like, what? <laughs> I was like, I just texted Heather about it. I thought you were going to be like, she's going to go, who's the Zodiac? I'm excited, but who? No, no, no. Very into true crime. She actually was just telling me a story yesterday, I think. So she listened to our Armin Maivez case. One of the... Yummy. Yeah. One of the people who actually listened to that episode, because we've through. talked about before, yeah. that's the lowest download count that we have is on that episode, because it apparently turned a lot of people off and she was like oh that's one of my favorites like i really love that case when they heard that their sneaky snack of choice was genitals they were like i'm gonna i'm gonna yeet right out of this they were like i am not pulling a chair up to that table (laughs) so kason said she had been fighting the urge to talk to 
her other friends about that case until they were all having a couple of drinks and she got like loose and she started (laughs) telling them the whole story and she said some of them were a little yeah a little turned off by her telling that story but one of them was then interested and she started telling him about the podcast so maybe that friend is now listening too who knows maybe so hello Kason's friend if you have started listening yeah send us a christmas present yeah onesies butt flaps butt flaps Sometimes I need to cool off my cheeks. Ugh. I don't think this is what the butt flap is for. No, it's not. (laughs) It's not at all. (laughs) All right, let's jump into the Michelle Harris case. Okay, yeah. This one is not really well known at all. Which is so weird to me. Yeah, because it's more, well, I say modern. Long story short, this guy has had four separate trials Yeah, like that's got to be a record. Yeah, for an alleged crime that happened at this point almost 20 years ago. Yeah, so Michelle disappears on September 11th, 2001. 2001. And even though this had happened 20 years ago, up until about five years ago, he was still going through his last trial. Like this drug out for 15 years. Yeah. Yet somehow, there's hardly anything online at all. Like it just... Well, he's super rich, so think that might have something to do with it i see but he's not in la so never mind okay i guess we'll start then again i feel like i say this in every single episode ever there's not a lot of information on our poor victim here there's actually not a lot of personal information on her husband either so most i could find is her name (laughs) is michelle ann harris she was born on September 29th of 1965. In New York, I believe in Tioga Center. I believe that's where she was born, raised, and where she allegedly died as well. She meets Calvin Harris at a dealership that she's working at. And Calvin Harris at the time is in his late 20s. All I could find basically on his, I was about to say past life as though he's been like reincarnated. But like, <laughs> I mean, like on his history is that he was athletic. He played lacrosse in college. And obviously he has some sort of degree I couldn't find, but he started running the family owned business at the age of 27. Right. So the car dealership where she was working was actually yes. owned by his family. That car dealership was one of six dealerships that he ran with his brother. I would assume that this was something that his his parents at one point or another had owned and that he and his brothers kind of split the dealerships and ran them. He was rich. Yep. Rich. Loaded. <laughs> like lots of money, which is never mind. I was going to make a mean comment about his mug, but I won't. About his mug? Yeah, like face. Yeah, but who says mug? We're into true crime. Yeah, get a look at that guy's mug. You know, like Who was that a, supposed to be it's an a, impression of? Honestly, I don't know. It was a mixture, I think, of like BuzzFeed Unsolved guys, you know? I felt like that was a good, a good mixture. Let's of just those. keep moving. Anyway, so Michelle's working at this dealership that is run by Calvin Harris, not the DJ. Is he a DJ? I don't know. Or a singer? You're getting very easily DJ. distracted tonight. <laughs> Whatever. Well, because when I typed in Calvin Harris for this crime, all I got was this DJ. I know he's in, in music somehow. Something. I don't okay. know. I'm so, old. Okay? I know you are. As you tried to force down everyone's throat recently. Yeah, your birthday's coming up. I'm almost 30. Oh, man. Now that Christmas is over, I have to get you a birthday present. Yeah, you sure do. I should have been on top of this. Hope you like onesies with butt flowers. <laughs> 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 right. So, again, for the fifth time, Michelle is working at this car dealership that's being run by Calvin Harris. There's not really much information on how the relationship kind of blossoms, but you get the picture. They meet, they hit it off, and then they get married. They don't get married, like, that day. 
I would hope not. No. They actually get married in 1990. And at this time, Calvin, or we're going to call him Cal, he was 29 at that time. And he was married before. I don't believe he had any children with his first wife. Uh, Not that I saw. Yeah, not that I could see. So he had been married and already divorced by the time they married in 1990. This was, however, Michelle's first marriage. And by the time she turned 33... She had already, like at the time of her death, she had already had four children. All of them were under the age of six. Like, all of them were under school age. Mm -hmm. So, that's a lot. Obviously, because he's rich. They lived in, like, a, what was it, 250 plus acres of land that had a private lake. I mean, this thing is... Huge. And this is in New York, where New York, land yeah. is not cheap. I had read that it was in Spencer, New York, but I'd also heard that it was in Tioga County. I don't know if Spencer is in Tioga County. I'd heard several different cities, but upstate New York, they lived in a huge, like what I would describe as almost like a compound because they have so much land. They have so much land and a lake. Just keep that in mind. Oh, boy. <laughs> so much land. Now, in interviews with Cal... The details for the downfall of their marriage are a little fuzzy, and Cal, in my opinion, tends to try to place blame on Michelle. I'm not saying that it's uncommon or that she didn't hold any blame. I mean, it takes two to tango, you know what I mean? But from all of the sources I could find, Cal was the first person that stepped out on the marriage. And this was with another young woman that had been working at a car dealership. There's no details about her, no really details about the affair, but I did see from most all of the sources that the first affair was on his part. And then he's quick to say when he's asked in an interview, when he's asked directly, did you cheat on your wife? And he says, well, we both had an affair. Well, yeah, so that was, I (laughs) found that they were both unfaithful. I couldn't really decipher for sure who it was that stepped out of the marriage first. Yeah, but yeah, he did always answer any type of question like that with that they had both done that. I think it is safe to say at this point, it probably was him from all of like their friends and families kinds of accounts that I'd seen and like official sort of crime shows. They all seem to say that, yeah, he stepped out of the marriage first. Not saying that her stepping out on him afterwards was right either, but... Well, I mean, but he's also a sleaze. Like, this guy's a little mini Harvey Weinstein over here. He's not a great dude. And unfortunately, there's really nothing about Michelle that I can, like, judge her character, I guess. But in any case, there was infidelity on both parts. And he kind of, like... (laughs) He kind of blames his infidelity on the fact that... She had four children, you know, his four children, you know, the ones that he helped make. Like he says that, I don't know if he saw the documentary where he's like, well, you know, she had four kids. There was a lot going on. Something just changed as if that was an excuse to step out on your wife that's trying to care for your four children. Oh, I don't yeah. Know. Like he's just, he's a sleaze. You're right. He's right. a sleaze. Yeah. You expected your marriage and yeah. your wife to stay exactly the same after you have four children in the span of yeah. four or five years. I mean, he's just like, man. I don't really like that she takes care of these little minions of mine. I got, <laughs> I got to get out of here. It was like, like what we were talking about before when we talked about Burke in the Jean Benet Ramsey case, where it's you know as the older child you get like a little jealous of the time yeah. that the new younger sibling takes away, and he's treating these kids yeah. like they're his younger siblings, like getting jealous yeah. of the time that his wife is dedicating to his 
children. Yeah, pretty much. It's anyway, his affair was her fault. It's pretty much that that's implied by him. There's that for sure. toxic masculinity again. Yeah, that I'm I'm definitely going to say. So she finds out about this affair and I guess at some point maybe they had tried to work it out and I'm not sure when her infidelity occurred. If they're talking about the infidelity towards their separation or if there was like another set I'm not clear about that. The but, way that it was presented was as if before the divorce and separation came about, they had both been unfaithful. Have, yeah, but yeah. It, again, that's not clear. Either way, it is confirmed. He had an affair. She did find out about it. And their marriage was all that was already going downhill just took a steep decline. And she tried to work things out with him, I guess, at some point or another, but it they just couldn't do it. And in January of 2001, she filed for divorce. And like I said, he's rich, like $5.5 million rich. And so basically there was a lot, a lot at stake for this divorce for both of them. I'm also unable to find whether or not she was working at the time. So this when she filed for divorce, I know she took a job after that. We'll get to, but I'm not sure if she was just like a housewife. I'm, I'm not sure if she like just, did she just stay at home and care for the kids because they had a nanny. Yeah. But but the implication I think was that she was a stay at home mom at the time that the divorce is filed in January, because they're all still living together. That, to me, implied that she didn't have a separate source of income. Right. So she's staying in this family home, even though they're working on separating. Yeah, that and all of these kind of like financial decisions that were made after would probably imply that she wasn't, she didn't have a steady job of any kind. Right. And that that was probably the decision that they made as a couple. Well, yeah. I would say, especially when he's bringing home that much money. Right. They did not need any additional income. So obviously, if she's looking to divorce him, she would have nothing. You know, she doesn't have a job or anything like that. And he's got all this money. So things, obviously, when you put money and kids in the middle of a relationship like that, things are going to get ugly. And they did. So like I said, he's worth about five and a half million dollars. And they toy with different ideas on like offers and things like that. Some of it is court ordered. Some of the offers he throws out there are offers that he and his attorney decide to make. But Either way, it had been decided that he is going to have to pay her $80,000 a year for 10 years. It was going to be like a lump sum of somewhere between $740,000 and $800,000 altogether that he was supposed to pay annually at that like $80,000 mark. And she was going to have custody of the kids. I believe that was the offer. But what's weird, I'll jump back to it. But the other piece of the money was that so he had to give her that every year. But at the time of their separation, after she filed, he was court-ordered to pay her $400 a week. Yeah. And the judge also ordered that, obviously, he had to continue to pay all of the bills. And they're married, so they're all joint kind of bills, I suppose. Yeah, but he's covering all of the household expenses, which I I imagine was the the arrangement anyway. And then $400 a week to Michelle specifically. Yeah, and... He says, this comes directly from him, is that he had offered her the 800000 Not that that was a court order, but I'd read it in different places that that actually was court ordered. So I'm unsure. But with that 800000 he says that he did offer her custody of the children, which I'm also not sure about how true that is because she filed for divorce in January. But at the time of the events that are about to take place, she still lived in the family home. And this is because her lawyer advised her to, because had she left the home, they could have used it against her as though she was like abandoning her children. 
And that would look bad when she's trying to fight for custody. So I'm confused because were they fighting for custody? And other things that he says in his interviews about things that she'd written in her report. And he even says, well, you know, she's trying to get custody of the kids. So I'm confused. Was she fighting to get custody of these kids or were you offering her the children? Because that seems... To me. Well, yeah, there's unfortunately there's a lot of conflicting versions of the story and you can't really find, like we said right at the top, anything super concrete about this case anywhere. I mean, if he was offering her the kids and they were able to get that in writing, which they didn't, but if he was offering it to her, then she would have no reason to stay in the home. Right. Because after she files, they're legally separated. And even though she's still living in the home, he's ordered to pay her an allowance of $400 a week. She still goes out and finds a job. And this job is at a bar called Lefties. It's like a bar restaurant type thing. The way I've heard it described is that some less than savory characters, I guess, frequented this bar. Well, I think that's the case with any bar. I guess. I don't know. Although it's in up, it was in upstate New York, right? I mean, is that what like does a that nice? Mean? I, is that like a nice place? Is that like an affluent kind of? I mean, there, it's just like anywhere else. There are parts that are affluent and parts that aren't quite so much and middle yeah, class know. areas. And I know nothing about New York, so I don't know. So in the meantime, while all this is happening, in their divorce documents, she's also alleging that he abused her. Not frequently. The court documents say, I, I believe had, she had claimed that he had abused her physically between two and three times that he'd knocked her down, and that he had threatened her life. And this will come up again later. But during all of this kind of thing, she started confiding in, she had a brother, and confiding in his wife some things that Cal had said to her, such as having the perfect place to hide her body, things like that, that he was going to kill her. You know, pillow talk kind of stuff. The sweet nothings (laughs) he was whispering in her ear. Pretty much. And some of her friends and family had also commented on what kind of person he was becoming during this time. And even before she had decided to divorce him, that he was controlling, that he would get upset if she didn't dress or act the way he wanted her to. And he would like demean her by saying, again, I can't completely confirm exactly the city she was born in, but he would, I guess, use that against her and be like, oh, well, you're just a small town girl. You're always going to be a small town girl. Kind of like, you don't fit in with me. You're not dressing or acting the way I want you to. And again, this is all alleged. This is things that her friends and family have come and said that she has said. So this is all third party kind of stuff. Right. But basically kind of showing a pattern of toxic behaviors on his part. I haven't heard really anything from him or any other people that said that she had had any kind of toxic behavior on her part. It really does all kind of seem to be, he's not a great dude. No, yeah. And most of the stuff that you hear about Michelle is what a good mom she was and, you know, how much she really did try to salvage the marriage when things started going wrong. I mean, everything that you hear about her was pretty positive. Yeah. Although, I mean, a lot of people try not to talk negatively about a victim, but again, there's really not a whole lot of information anyway. Okay, so... Michelle is taking this job at the lefties bar. We're now in September of 2001. And we're just going to go ahead and move it right to September 11th, 2001. We all know what happened. It is the deadliest terror attack in the United States ever. And that happened in New York City. They don't live in New York City, but they live in New York. And close as well. So she goes in for her shift at lefties. And as she's getting ready, the nanny, Barbara Thayer... She describes her as being a little off that morning. And 
I don't, I don't know why this is like an important detail or why it's even commented on. Of course, she's off that morning. I think we were all a little off that morning yeah. when we watched two buildings collapse and planes crashing and, you know, 2,000 plus people dying. I think everybody was a little shaky, especially those people who lived in New York and still had to leave the comfort of their homes to go to their jobs. I would expect she's probably a little shaky. Well, yeah. And I mean, at that point, my family was living on the Jersey Shore, and my father was an employee of a brokerage firm in the Twin Towers. So there was a lot of, you know, not even just in New York, obviously it was nationwide, but mm-hmm. not just in New York, in New Jersey, just it was, I mean, it was palpable. Mm-hmm. Every Everything was off that day. Yeah. So I think that that's a really difficult thing to judge of anyone on that day, whether or not they had any personal connection to what had just happened i mean as a country we all felt attacked yeah i remember like walking home from school and never having been to new york and i know how far away it is but walking home like from the bus stop like with my backpack over my head thinking that someone was gonna drop a bomb out of the sky type of thing i mean i was fairly young but still it was scary so i don't really know that her behavior that morning and her shift and all of that should really be taken into consideration considering the events that happened that day, right. I guess. But either way, she said she was a little uneasy. So Michelle goes to her shift at Lefty's, the bar, and her shift ends at around 9 p.m. But she stays there for approximately another half hour with her current boyfriend, Michael Casper. Well, one of her current boyfriends. Right. And she has a drink with Michael Casper and one of his friends, another regular at Lefty's bar, Michael Hakes. So they all sit around and have drinks. These men basically testify to the fact afterwards that they were just kind of like unwinding after the shift and kind of talking about the events that unfolded that day kind of thing. Everybody's kind of on edge. They all need a drink. But she leaves about 30 minutes later, around 930, and she goes to the home of Brian Early, which is... Another boyfriend of hers. second boyfriend. And this part, this kind of sucks because people are always going to assume and or paint her as some sort of bad person because she had two boyfriends. And a lot of us, me included, I don't necessarily agree with that kind of behavior. However, she's just getting out of a 10-year marriage. And if she wants to date or however, what kind of ever agreement or the things, that's, that's her business. Well, and that's the thing is that she was just dating. The divorce had just been filed a few months previous. It's not like she was in any type of serious, mm-hmm. dedicated, committed relationship yeah. with either of these men. Well, and that's just the thing. Just like you said, the divorce was filed. It right. hasn't been completed. So she's technically s- still married. So there's nothing super serious that could be happening. She's still married to Cal. Right. And I mean, just to even further that point, no one knew about Michael Casper when Michelle disappeared. Everything kind of no, unravels later. I think it was the other later. way around. The people at the bar knew about Michael Casper. He was the boyfriend that she was out with. Well, no, no, but drinks. I'm saying like her friends and her family did not know about Michael Casper. I think the people that they didn't, no one knew about Brian early. Not even until the trial. Oh, I had that Casper yeah. was this secret boyfriend and early was someone she had been seeing a little bit longer that oh, her friends know. did know about. Maybe. I don't know. There's so again, many different yeah, like, conflicting sources. Exactly. Either way, the point is, is that she did have two boyfriends. And neither one of them was super serious. One yeah. of them, people didn't even really know about. Yeah, and neither of them knew about each other. Right. So, yeah, she was being a little secretive, kind of sowing her wild oats type of thing. And that's fine. 
So she goes to Brian Early's home after she has drinks with her first boyfriend, goes to boyfriend number two's house, and he says that she leaves his home between 11, 11.30. She had met Brian Early a year prior to this. Right, so just before the divorce yes. is filed. So maybe he was the affair that Cal is referring to. And that's just pure speculation. Yeah. And Brian but he said that he had hoped to marry her. Yeah. Once the divorce was finalized. So he yeah, at least felt like they Brian were headed in a like, serious direction. Yeah, Brian was head over heels for her. And he says she left the, the house around 11, 1130, and that he brought her to a car. He leaned in, gave her a kiss through the window. That's the last he saw her. When asked, well, you were the last person that saw her. And he says, yeah, I'm the only one that will admit that I'm the last one that saw her. Yeah. Yeah, because really the last time that she is seen publicly is when she leaves lefties at 930. Yeah. And then there's these two hours where he says, oh, well, she came here when she left work. Yeah. And and she was here until 1130 or or so. Yeah. He was very open with the police, but we'll get to that. (sighs) So that brings us to September 12th now. September 12th of 2001. Michelle is presumed to be home when Cal wakes up. She is sleeping on the couch, which, um, side note, they live in this huge house on 250 plus acres and have a private lake, let me remind you again. <laughs> but she's sleeping on the couch? Well, they also had four children, so maybe all the bedrooms were taken up. Really? Her four children under six years old, two of them couldn't share a bed? I don't, listen, I wasn't making the decisions she's sleeping in that on household. the couch? I don't know. Just I don't seems- agree with it. Just I'm just weird. saying that maybe know. that's why. Maybe it's one of those things where, like, my living room couch is way more comfortable than my bed. I'll nap out there all day long. Maybe. I don't know. So, Cal gets up in the morning like he does every day. Nothing unusual. That is, until he goes down to prep for his day and realizes that Michelle's not on the couch. And the children aren't up. And getting prepared, I guess, to go to school and or daycare, whatever they go to. And he just... I, I, I guess, I don't know. This is one of those, like, John Benet Ramsey things again. He searches, air quotes, <laughs> I guess searches the house. She's not there. And he calls the nanny, Barbara Thayer. And he says to her, hey, Michelle didn't come home last night. Can you come over and help get the kids ready? And she says, yeah, I'll be right there. And she does. She comes right away to help prepare the kids. But as she's pulling up to the driveway, at the end of the driveway is Michelle's van and when i was reading this the description this gold 2000 ford windstar i was like uh but then i realized that the 2000 model would have been new in 2001 would have been new ish yeah, yeah. Like looking at it going like oh what an old car and then i realized like <laughs> yeah oh, you're yeah. realizing oh wait it's not 2020 in this yeah. story yeah, yeah and so- who didn't whose family did not have a 2000 Ford Windstar. <laughs> I don't know what it was. Like, I didn't know what it was. Oh, well, I'm going to tell you, my mother was rocking a really? 2000 Ford Windstar we didn't have... when me and my younger siblings were growing up. No, the big car that we got when they had first had the second set of siblings, my sister and I, and then we have a younger set of brothers, and they had the Explorer, and then when the, my last brother was born, we upgraded to the Expedition, and man, I thought that thing was tight. <laughs> the Ford Expedition was the bee's knees, man. Oh, It no. was so good. So anyway, Barbara is pulling up to the house. She's coming to watch the kids, like I said, but when she pulls up, she notices the Windstar is there. So she obviously stops to inspect it because her first thought is... Well, Michelle's home. Right. So she gets out. She goes over to the van, and the van is empty, and the keys are still in the ignition, but there is no Michelle. So that starts to worry Barbara pretty much right away. As it should. She goes inside, and she says, you know, 
Michelle's van is out in the driveway. And Cal obviously reports her missing to the police right away. Or does he? <laughs> that is a complete lie. Cal does nothing. <laughs> okay, but you know what? Okay, so here's what's really weird, though, is that so all of this stuff is going on throughout the day, right? And then other people are finding out her friends are desperately calling her, yeah. leaving these frantic voicemails. People are trying to find her. No one reports her missing no. until someone reaches out to her well, divorce wait, we're, we're attorney. getting there. So let's go back to the house. So Barbara's at the house. She's talking to Cal. Cal obviously does nothing. He's more concerned with getting the children ready. He's just like, who cares about Michelle? Get the kids ready. He doesn't say that, but that's how I picture him because he's a sleazebag. It's also the impression that a lot of people who are interviewed about this try to give, is that he really just did not care, was very nonchalant, unfazed by it. But I do want to say, in fairness, they're going through a divorce. He's aware that she's seeing other men. Yes. I don't think... That it's completely outside the realm of possibility that you would think that she had stayed out or whatever. Now, yeah. once you once the van is found, should there have been yeah. a little bit of a shift? I, I mean, I don't know exactly, but I just want to say, like, in fairness, she was divorcing him. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that it would it's normal to expect him to, like, fall apart. No, not just because, like, she didn't show up one morning. It's incredibly unusual so it should have given him a red flag but the only pass i'll give him is him not being incredibly emotional about her and i understand his want to well just get the kids ready let's get them out because if i think my spouse is missing and i have children i'd want them out of the house as well right so i don't blame him for that piece this piece i do blame him for they get the kids ready they send them out michelle's van is still out there and he's telling her this van is a mess we need to get it cleaned up and send it to my dealership where the car was from it's from the dealership that he owns so his concern is to get the kids off to school clean this van and then he goes off to work just leaving it there now at the same time this is around eight in the morning now Michelle always calls her friend and i think her name was was it nikki nikki burke is that her name that sounds right let me double check. <clears throat> Professional page turn. Nikki Burdick. I was really close. So her friend Nikki Burdick always gets a call from her every morning around 8 a.m. This call doesn't happen. So she calls the house and Barbara Thayer, the nanny, answers and says, Michelle's not here. She didn't come home last night. And Nikki Burdick, much like we've seen in a few other cases, man, some of these best friends are the real MVPs. She says, no, no, Michelle wouldn't do that. She would never not come home to her children. So she's the friend that you're referring to. She calls, not the police though, she calls her attorney. But also doesn't call the attorney right away because they're calling Michelle and leaving voicemails and trying to get a response first. Hers are the voicemails that you can hear in like the docs and stuff. Right. So it winds up being though several hours, Mm -hmm. even from the discovery of the van at the end of the driveway before this call to the divorce attorney, which finally leads to Michelle being reported missing. I do kind of get it. So I know that we're trying to say that it's really unusual that Cal's just going to go straight to work and not report his wife missing, but we're giving the friends a pass. My opinion on this is, is that I'm not saying that Cal should have called immediately to report his wife missing, especially if he thinks that she's out with a boyfriend, which is reasonable. But to go to work, he never called Michelle. Right. No, no. And I'm not giving, I'm not trying to give anybody a pass. I just think it's very odd that we spend all of this time without ever contacting the police. I understand the train of thought, you know, maybe she stayed at this boyfriend's house. Mm-hmm. Once the van is found at the end of the driveway, whether you're going through a divorce or not, I think you make that phone call. Yeah, because that's odd. And once the yeah. friends find out, you know, she misses this phone call she makes every morning, and then she finds out from the nanny, 
hey, she's not here. Mm-hmm. She didn't come home last night. And you know that's weird. Yeah, maybe you try calling Michelle once and leave a voicemail. Then call the cops. She, but he did none of this. Now, her friends were at least trying. Well, the friends so, are trying to reach her. I just think it's very odd that no one reached out to the police. I don't know. Sooner it, than they did. I suppose. But she is an adult. And she did have a boyfriend. And... I feel like a lot of people might be embarrassed to call. And I think a lot of people still have it in their head that you can't report an adult missing until such and such time. I feel like a lot of people still think that but way. But the the van being found with the, the key and the ignition is, yeah. is a mitigating circumstance where I feel like well, yeah. I would have called the cops. So in any case, they don't. Um, this Nikki Burdick calls her attorney. And side note. Michelle, that morning, had an appointment with her attorney that Cal was not aware of, but she had an appointment with her divorce attorney. So obviously, they had been waiting for Michelle to show up, and she doesn't, and Nikki calls her and says, well, she didn't, she's not home either. So the attorney calls and reports her as a missing person to the police. The police show up at the house, or well, I'm sorry, they don't show up at the house. They go to Cal's place of work, one of the dealerships. Right. And again, Cal has not called them. Cal has not called her. He hasn't done anything. He just went to work. The first thing he tells them is that, well, she probably went out with a boyfriend. And then he tells them when they go to the house. So Cal and these police officers leave to go to the house. And he basically says, well, you know, she was planning to go to New York City today to like, I guess, pawn some jewelry and all of that. Again, he doesn't know about the appointment with her attorney. So whether or not she told him that, I'm not sure. Well, and he doesn't know actually that she's going to pawn the jewelry. He believes that she's going into New York City to see an old classmate, I think, from college. And it's her friends who have since said, you know, she had mentioned to them Mm -hmm. she was having these financial problems that was going to pawn some of this jewelry. Well, he describes the bag that she keeps her jewelry in. He's aware of this. He describes it as a purple velvet bag that she's been carrying her wedding ring and her Rolex watch to pawn. She was having money issues as well. So even though she was getting the $400 allowance and that he was still paying for things that's all she was getting from him and she did have that job at lefties but she had something like upwards of like sixteen thousand dollars in credit card debt on her own yeah and she owed a thousand dollars to the kids babysitter yeah i don't know i could see her owing the nanny a thousand dollars because they maybe they came into this arrangement like if it was her night to watch the kids or like cal was working her out and she decided that she wanted to either go out with her boyfriend or had to work that she had to pay for those nights you know like okay well if it's your night with the kids you're gonna have to pay the nanny whatever still odd so anyway the cops and cal have gone to his house And he says, oh, well, she could have gone out with a boyfriend or, oh, she was going to meet friends in the city or even that she was going to pawn jewelry in the city. Either way, it's odd. Who was going to New York City on September 12th, 2001? Like, who's going there? Unless you're a first responder. Who is going into New York City? Nobody. So that's the first kind of red flag. However, the cops describe Cal as, quote, calm and unemotional. And he didn't seem to be, quote, trying to hide anything or stop us from doing anything. And Cal says, you guys are free to look around. Cal leaves and goes back to work and leaves the two police officers to search the home and do whatever they want. And they do. They do film this and everything like that. So they're doing a search of the home. They even, at some point during like all of this, bring in a helicopter because, again, 250 plus acres of land and a lake. So Well, and again, the guy's that. a sleaze. But in fairness yeah. to him, they're going through a pretty nasty divorce. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the way that this is all presented is like, well, why isn't he falling apart? Why isn't he getting emotional? And I just don't 
understand why that would be the expectation with their circumstance. I agree, actually. Because it's kind of like, you guys filed for divorce in January. It's now been like eight or nine months. Right. And clearly, you know, things aren't going well. You're not all lovey-dovey. Right. So things aren't going well. The divorce is very complicated and messy. You both stepped outside of the marriage. Mm -hmm. Now you know for a fact that she has a boyfriend. Yeah. You know, who knows whether or not he knows that there's multiple men she's seeing or whatever. There's not a ton of emotional investment left at that point. It's all about the dollars and cents that you're trying to sort this all out so that the marriage is over. This actually doesn't work in his favor with him saying these kinds of things. But in the documentaries, I'm sure you've noticed where he's like, well, you know, I'd always kind of hoped that she'd come back and like we'd work things out. Like not come back from like her disappearance, but like before this happened, like she'd want to come back to me. Well, my understanding is, you know, she was the one who wanted the divorce. We know that she filed for it. Yeah. My understanding was that he didn't want the divorce yeah. when it started. So I think that that so still maybe makes that's sense. Why, maybe that's why they did expect him to act a little more emotional if he's still invested in this marriage. I, mean, I don't know. I just feel like... can be. But I feel like at that point, though, you're just so worn down. And yeah, I agree. You're just... You're emotionally exhausted. Mm-hmm. I don't think you have that emotional investment anymore. And you've kind of accepted... Yeah. You know, we've been living under the same roof for eight months since she filed this divorce, and it's not working its way back toward us. Mm-hmm. She's working her way away from me. Yeah. And I and, think and that you just kind of try to detach. Yeah. She's obviously having a sexual relationship with other men, and that could also drive him apart. Although, I mean, whatever. Well, I mean, we're assuming, because yeah. we don't have anything confirmed that she was sleeping with anyone. It's hard right. to imagine but, this guy saying, I want to marry her when the divorce is over, oh, if they yeah. haven't been intimate, if it's not at that stage. But we yeah, don't but know that, that for sure. that definitely could have signified that she was done, and he could have, like, cut her off emotionally. Absolutely. Kind of like that. But I digress. A few little more odd things that happen before we get into all of these trial phases. Cal gets a girlfriend. This was an old flame of his that he rekindled things with 18 days after she disappeared. 18 days after his still wife disappeared. Again, I wouldn't I wouldn't blame him for getting a girlfriend had Michelle still been around because she's obviously dating other people. They're legally separated. They're going through this divorce. I do think it's odd that he gets a girlfriend 18 days after his... Like, he has no regard for this at all. I just also, though, we don't know for sure that he hadn't already been reconnecting with this woman. The relationship just becomes a thing again. But according to her, she says, now, 18 days is also Michelle Harris's birthday, September 29th. Right. This girl, this old flame, now Cal's current girlfriend, says that she found his behavior to be odd, and this is what caused her to break it off with him, is that she asked Cal, aren't you, like, aren't you a little worried that she hasn't called or reached out to you, given that this is her birthday? And, like, don't you think she'd want to speak to her children on her birthday? And I guess he kind of dismisses her, and is like, she got the impression that he knew she wasn't coming back. From the things that he'd said, again, this is hearsay, I I suppose. And it's all hunches and assumptions. But her family also says, her family and friends say that he didn't reach out to any of them. He completely cut her family off, her brother and his wife, and didn't even call her father after she'd gone missing at any point, and especially not on her birthday. Well, again, though... He had to have detached. He had to have let it all go, all that emotional connection. And you don't want to stay connected to the family of your ex-wife when it's been bitter. Like, it's not like they were saying the day before she disappeared, they had these great, very close, loving relationships. You know, her family members with him. That really wasn't the case. It didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. It looks suspicious when she disappears, but... 
okay. it was that way before. So why does let's, that change? Let's just take it this way. So even though like our relationship isn't a romantic one, we still have a really close relationship. And I know your family and you know mine. So let's say that we get in a fight of falling out or whatever. And five months from now, you go missing. Well, I'm not going to cut your family off. And maybe we didn't end things on the right way and you're missing. I don't just stop loving you. Just because we've decided to end our friendship doesn't mean that like, oh, good. Well, I don't care if he's gone or missing or whatever. And then it's not like I wouldn't call your mother, especially like your birthday's coming up. It's not like I wouldn't call her and say, hey, I know this is really hard for you. And given the fact that, and I'm only talking about you and I as friends, but now escalate that to if we were husband and wife and had four. I don't want to think about that. (laughs) And had four children. Nope. Don't want to think about it. And a decades long marriage. I'm getting nauseous. like. (laughs) No, but I'll tell you right now, if you, if we had some huge falling out, and then hadn't been speaking to each other, I don't think, even though I don't think it would necessarily be easy on me, if you were to turn up missing while we weren't speaking, I don't think that I'd be reaching out to your family. I just, I don't think that would be the case, because I think before you disappeared, my connection with your family would have already been, would have drifted. I suppose. And I don't think I'd be reaching out. kids, and those are, her parents, that's their grandchildren. And to completely cut ties... With that but family. It, well, we I already mean, said he's not the best dude. Like, I mean, I if, this is a, if this is a great guy, father of the year, mm-hmm. even through the divorce, you want your kids to be able to connect with their family. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really seem like that kind of guy to me. So yeah. none of this strikes me as odd. Yeah, well, see, I guess you're more aligning yourself with now his friends are saying, well, yeah, I totally expect that he would have been calm and collected about things. And that's what his friends are saying. On the other hand, you have her friends and family that are saying he absolutely would have flipped out if she wouldn't have returned home. He would have been blowing up her phone and saying, you know, where the hell are you? Those kinds of things and getting angry because okay, that was but his behavior. See, that right there, though, is a perfect example of what I like to call the lifetime effect. Okay? <laughs> because in all of those movies, it's always the husband who did it. So everyone puts everything that the husband does under a microscope and looks at it in the worst possible light. Right. And I'm just saying, I'm trying to get in the head of a man who is going through this bitter divorce, he feels scorned, he feels betrayed, he has been hurt, I think you just detach. I I think you shut some of that stuff down. So it just doesn't strike me as weird. Am I saying that that doesn't mean that he had something to do with this? Absolutely not. I'm just saying that we're looking at him for things that don't really make sense to be why we look at someone. Yeah. Now, we could go back and forth all day long about what his friends and family said versus what her friends and family said. I'm trademarking the lifetime effect. By the way, I just want that. (laughs) But moving back to at least this current girlfriend of his, this is what she said, and she has no stake in this, and that whether or not it was the reason he was acting that way, she as a person felt his behavior was odd. But moving on, obviously the cops are going to look at him. Whether or not their marriage was good or bad, the husband's always the first suspect. The spouse, I should say, is always the first suspect, and that's fine. Thanks, Lifetime. We all know that. And then he, of course, looked at the three men that she is reported to have been with, which is going to be the two Michaels that she was with. One of them was her boyfriend. They both took polygraphs. They both passed. However, although the boyfriend has cleared the other man that they were with at the bar, the other Michael, Michael Hakes, he definitely put up a red flag because he served a prison sentence for a rape. 10 years in prison in Arizona. Amongst a laundry list of other kinds of crimes. I did look him up and I could not find it, which I thought was odd. I feel like it would be public record. But I'd have to know what state he was arrested in and I couldn't find it. I know that the rape was in Arizona. I know that he served 10 years there. but maybe you'll have to check on that. Yeah, but you don't know where any of these other charges could have been from. Yeah, he had a polygraph 
that he passed, and they had nothing to, to stick to him, really. Same with the the other Michael, the yeah, boyfriend. Yeah, Michael Casper. Now, Brian Early, he was a land surveyor from Philly, and like you said, he was absolutely head over heels in love with her. He had planned to marry her. He even left his job in Philadelphia to move to New York to be closer to her, and he had even started lending her money for her to be able to move out on her own into another home, and he assumed that once the divorce was final, they would be marrying each other. Barbara Thayer, the nanny, said, this isn't the case that she didn't take it as seriously but again we we don't know the ins and outs of their relationship or how she really felt or who she was telling the truth to whatever but for the record he also cooperates with the investigation and also passes a polygraph yes now the last person to polygraph at this time is cal harris he says that his polygraph results were inconclusive the police say he failed I don't know. I don't see it black and white on a piece of paper anywhere, but that's what I found. Well, and I think in the investigator's eyes, an inconclusive result basically is a failure. Yeah. You know, so I do think that they could be talking about the same thing. Could be. They could be kind of putting it at one angle, or he really could have failed. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah, we don't know. And for the next, like, four-ish years, they make no arrests. Nothing happens. And I will, I know we talk about a lot of bad police work and a lot of bad detective work, which I'm I'm sure you'll touch on as well because that does happen in this case we'll give them a very small pass and saying i don't expect that much could have been done immediately considering the amount of first responders and police officers and things like that that were going to new york city on september 11th and 12th and the following days weeks and months afterward it was a horrible horrible time for someone to go missing and a great time for someone to commit a crime sure nothing is really done up until that point no arrests no nothing um, and you can't arrest somebody because of an inconclusive or failed polygraph. Right. And there's and no no murder weapon, no body. And the extent that the investigation does exist, it's a lot of just talking to the last people who saw her. Talking to the, anybody who knows anything about her movements on the last night that we know she was alive and well. And obviously they search the house. They try to collect evidence of the house. They really don't find much, though. No. And uh, I think all find... that was in the van was her... It was an empty Rolex watch and... Cal says that she actually kept the watch itself in that velvet bag with her wedding ring to pawn. That was really all that was found in the van. Right. Yeah. So then, and as they're looking into things, you know, they obviously check, is there any activity on her cell phone, on her bank accounts, on her credit cards? Nothing. There's no activity whatsoever. She completely, like, is gone. The only physical evidence that is found are a few drops of blood in the kitchen and the garage at Mm -hmm. the house. And that is it. Yeah. That's all of the physical evidence that exists while they're doing the investigation. So the next movement in the case is September 30th, 2005. Yeah. And that is when... Almost exactly four years later. Right. And that is when a grand jury indicts Cal on a single charge of second degree murder. July 27th of 2006, the trial for that charge is postponed at the request of Cal's attorney. Because they're still working on all of these pre-trial things. They get a postponement. December 15th of 2006, the judge tells the defense and the prosecution that he, at that point, intends to dismiss the indictment. He's just not seeing things coming together properly. Things aren't moving forward. He's ready to throw it out, essentially. Three days later, the district attorney asks the judge to recuse himself and claims that he has shown bias toward the defense. Excuse me, sir. I ask you to recuse yourself. Okay. 
So I don't know. I felt like it needed to be said in an accent. It didn't. So the judge denies that allegation, obviously, but he does step down, which I do think is a fairly common thing. Yeah. Once you're asked to recuse and there's questions like that, question marks that are going to hang over everything that happens after that point. Mm-hmm. Not only as in a this judge, case, you but just, any subsequent case. Right. And so well. as a judge, you just kind of remove yourself from the equation. You just kind of yeet right out of there. You yeet, indeed. <laughs> uh, Excuse me, sir. <laughs> Please yeet yourself right out of here. <laughs> so then the next day, December 19th of 2006, a new judge is appointed by state officials to preside over the case. January 28th of 2007, this new judge throws out the indictment but gives permission for the DA to submit the case to a new grand jury. How fun. And the reasoning that's given is that he essentially <laughs> feels that the district attorney asked the other judge to recuse himself solely because he was going to throw out the indictment because it wasn't going to stand. Mm-hmm. And this judge was like, yeah, you're not going to use me You're not going to use this judicial process to get around the fact that your indictment doesn't hold water. So we're not even to a trial yet. And I don't want to... I know a lot of you are probably into true crime. How heavily you guys are into how things work legally. We're not into the trial yet. If you guys know what an indictment is, you make an arrest... Then you have an indictment. When I very first like heard these terms in grand jury, you think, oh, it's a jury. They're in a trial. No. No, no. So the grand jury actually gets the case presented to them. Yes. And to see if there's ju- even a case. Right. To see if there is enough to even charge the person with a crime. And the indictment is the yeah. formal filing of the charges right. against yeah. so that Right. So not even individual. the trial. So we're like months and months in now. All of these things are happening with these judges. We're not even at the trial stage yet. Right. And this stuff's being talked yeah, about. Yeah. So we're over. Just wanted to clarify. We're over a year from the indictment coming down from the grand jury. Right. We still have not hit trial. And he's in- We already have two judges involved in the case. Right. Is he in jail or did he like post bail? Did you find that anywhere? I believe he was on bail. I, w- I would imagine with his kind of money. Unless they like held him without bail. I, I mean, wouldn't they imagine would, they would. They would argue the flight risk, but I think with having four young yeah. children. Not and they have no body. So. Right. So I believe okay. he was on bail. I did not find that for this first charge specifically. Yeah. As we get further into, you know, we already mentioned there are four trials in oh, this yeah. case. Yeah. As we get further in, I found specific information, even like the amounts of mm, okay. the bonds that were ordered. I couldn't find it for this first one. So then on February 26th of 2007, Cal is reindicted on a single count of second degree murder. Again. So it's about a month after the judge threw out the first indictment. Mm-hmm. He's reindicted. The jury selection for that trial begins on May 21st, 2007. And during that trial, the prosecution tries to argue that Cal beat Michelle to death in the home. And they have a blood spatter expert who testifies that the blood mm-hmm. in photos from the home And a very, appears, very good one. Yes. Dr. Henry Lee, who we have mentioned several times. Several times. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Henry Lee, also involved in this case. Who we love, by the way. We sure do. We love you, Dr. Lee. (laughs) So he testifies that the blood appears fresh and that the size Mm -hmm. and shape of the droplets indicate blunt force trauma. Yeah, and he's inspecting these in photos, not at the crime scene. And we're going to touch back on that in just a second. The defense, though, argues that there's no evidence that Michelle is even dead. We don't have the body. Nobody, no crime, Sean. There's there's not a ton of blood, right? We're talking about just a few yeah. drops. And the defense has a lot of 
ways that that could have ended up there. Well, yeah, I mean, we're talking about in the she kitchen. She lived there up until the day she disappeared. And we're she talking lived about 10 years. in the kitchen and the garage where you may be dealing with things that are sharp and could right. cause a minor injury that could mm-hmm. cause a couple of drops of blood to be left behind. Right. Anyway, so that's all argued in the trial. On June 7th, 2007, the jury finds Cal guilty. <gasps> yeah. No. And his sentencing is scheduled for August 24th. Right. Of that same year. Yeah. And that's the end, guys. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> so, on the same day. This enrages me. The <laughs> same <see>. day. <laughs> Your face. You're just like. You look like that Ben Affleck meme where he's like outside smoking. Yes. Where you're just like, oh God. And if I had not quit smoking so long ago, this would be what would, this case right here, all of this would be what would bring me right back to it. Right. So the day that he is found guilty. Mm-hmm. And a not man, a minute sooner. <laughs> a man by the name of Kevin Tubbs calls Cal's attorney and he calls Cal's attorney while they are still in the courtroom after Cal has been found guilty. Mm. The attorney is still consoling an upset Cal who has just been convicted of the murder of his wife when this man leaves a message because he had found a newspaper from the day before talking about the case Mm -hmm. that mentions... That the last time Michelle Harris was seen was on September 11th. And Kevin Tubbs believes that he saw Michelle Harris on the morning of September 12th. So. Let's just be thankful that this guy isn't in charge of like stays of execution. (laughs) Because (laughs) this would be a very different case. (laughs) So Cal's attorney gets the message, immediately calls Kevin Tubbs. Sets up an interview. You know, they start organizing all of this now. Because this is significant information. Right. Because... Six years later. I it, it would mention... But it would destroy the prosecution's timeline. Because when they go to the sentencing hearing on August 24th, 2007, not only does Kevin Tubbs testify, but his mother also testifies. Oh, God. But Kevin says that he saw a woman who fit Michelle's description with a man in his 20s standing next to a pickup truck at the end of the Harris's driveway at around 5.30 a.m. on September 12th, 2001. 5.30 a.m. is roughly six hours after the prosecution has argued Cal had killed Michelle. Yeah, it's a little damper on things. So, Kevin Tubbs and his mother testify. The judge postpones the sentencing. Because now he's got this new information he needs to consider. On November 2nd, 2007, everyone's called back into court. The judge is ready to make his decision. And he throws out the conviction and orders a new trial and sets a $500,000 bond for Cal. I heard someone say, I think it was a podcast... This podcast actually has like a, a cool name. I think it was like Just the Tips or something like oh, that. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah, but I think she had, the podcaster there had made the comment that like judges have kept cases, I shouldn't say, they haven't thrown out cases for like much worse kinds of evidence that have come forward. And this guy just walks in 
or doesn't even walk in. He just calls and is like, hey, 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 did I send in some yet? Because I got some information for you. <laughs> I think I saw this girl or someone that looks like her, I think. And then the judge is like, oh, oh, well, this changes everything. <laughs> he, he doesn't even know him. He doesn't even know him. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Well, this guy you must saw have... saw her? Throw it out. This guy must have been very credible in the eyes of the court. For them to overturn a conviction based on his testimony. So that's what happens. So now, uh, but I'm November. Angry about it. I know. But November of 2007, Cal Harris is a free man again on a $500,000 bond. How much did he pay this Tubbs man? And is it his real name? Because every time you say Tubbs, I just. Okay, well, I don't know much about Kevin Tubbs, unfortunately. That is quite the allegation to make that Cal Harris paid him off. There's no evidence to suggest that. I didn't say just he did. For the I just record. asked how much do you think he would have. No, you said how much did he pay? Okay, fine, but I want our editor Sam to go back and fix that part so it makes me right. <laughs> <He's> wrong. <laughs> and that's about the only way you'll ever win an argument on this podcast. Okay, so moving forward, February 18th of 2009. Okay, so again, almost eight years removed from her disappearance. Right, and a year and a half after the initial conviction is thrown out. Right. A third judge is chosen to preside over the case, and he will preside over this new second trial. Right. Because remember, the first one never even got off the ground before the indictment was thrown out. On July 13th of 2009, the jury selection begins in this trial, and less than a month later... August 5th of 2009, Cal is once again found guilty of the second degree murder of Michelle Harris. So they move forward with sentencing and Does uh, anybody call? Kevin Tubbs doesn't have any new revelations this time. Does anyone else call? No. Okay. I just made sure it was a thing. <laughs> so on October 5th of 2009, Cal Harris is sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Oof. Of course, Cal appeals. As you do. Right. So on January 10th of 2011, okay, yeah. so we're now almost a decade. 10 years yeah. removed from Michelle's disappearance, Cal's appeal is heard, and on July 28th of 2011, that appellate court denies his appeal in a 3-to-1 vote. So, as one does, Cal files another appeal. Right. This one is heard by the appellate court on September 11th, 2012. So, 11 years to the day. That Michelle went missing. Mm. Now, in Some this... Of people just have poor choices for court dates. Yeah, very poor like timing. Like the Shanda Sherrod case when they released her, the yeah. date, like the anniversary of mm-hmm. when she was murdered. It's like, they have no... Ugh, whatever. They just don't pay a lot of attention to that type of stuff, no. it seems. So, during this second appeal is actually when Cal's defense team revisits Dr. Henry Lee's testimony right because at this point we've already had some of these tv shows and i can't remember which one specifically but you know the ones i'm talking about like 2020 nightline 48 hours those types of shows are already doing some stories on this case Mm -hmm. right because this guy has already gone through having an indictment thrown out being re-indicted tried convicted that's thrown out i know cbs's documentary 48 hours cbs if you're listening I cannot find this documentary anywhere. I have tried. I so even good subscribe job. to your streaming service. <laughs> so good job on Please protecting your copyrighted material. Email it to us at that. Ale- what is our email? That allegedly podcast at gmail.com. Okay, this is why you say it in the intro. And I, I know. Send me the documentary. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm sure someone at CBS is listening. So this is during the second appeal. They're Listen, revisiting. If Tubbs can get an entire murder conviction overturned, I can get CBS to send me a link to their documentary that works. We'll see. I apologize. Continue. I'm a little heated about <laughs> so, this. So during this appeal is when they revisit this blood evidence, right? Because the analysis that was done by Dr. Henry Lee at the trial right. is based on photographs. Mm-hmm. And they find deleted scenes, essentially, from one of these crime shows mm-hmm. right. that talk about these photos being altered yeah, to yeah. make it so that it was more visible, so that you could see what it was they were trying to get a photograph of. Right. But it changed the coloring of the photos. Yeah, the photos have been altered. So let's clarify, because we love us some Dr. Lee. Dr. We sure Lee's do. testimony was not in any way like faulty or there's no like foul play there his testimony was fine unfortunately the evidence he was given to testify about while he was sitting in the chair was faulty right it wasn't his testimony it was the evidence that he his testimony was true based on what he was given to testify to yeah but the photos had been altered Mm -hmm. before that point and some people allege that this was done intentionally to get to render that testimony well i think you could make the argument that it was done intentionally i think you can also make the argument that the photos weren't very clear Mm -hmm. and i couldn't really find the photos themselves online but when i was watching some of these shows and one of them did show the deleted scenes that the defense uses in this appeal and so they're holding the photos and you get a quick glimpse of them they're not clear photos they're not great quality this is 2001. It could have also been, just as easily as it could have been done intentionally to get the testimony they were looking for, it could have been done unintentionally just trying to improve the quality of the photos so that an expert, especially of the caliber of Dr. Henry Lee, would be able to testify in court. Mm-hmm. And so... Because they're probably taking pictures with these, like, Nokia phones. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope the crime scene investigators had a camera. I guess it just wasn't a great one. They weren't using a Kodak. It wasn't a Kodak moment, I guess. What I'm confused about, though, is that in the 1960s, we put a man on the moon. Yet somehow, these crime photos (laughs) are good. I'm so confused. When I hear things like this, it baffles me. The photos had been altered. Basically, it changes the coloring. So yes, Dr. Henry Lee is testifying, well, the color of this, the bright red, like the depth of the red that we're seeing here, indicates that this would be fresh blood. Yeah, like two to three days. It's the age of the blood is why his testimony was important, because obviously it would be... One hell of a coincidence had that, you know, she'd cut her hand that day or was murdered that day. Right. Like, yeah. But obviously this calls that whole testimony into question then. Mm-hmm. And the integrity of the police department as well. Right. So on October 18th of 2012, mm-hmm. the appellate court overturns the conviction. Right. So by October 25th of 2012, Cal is back in court and he is released on another $500,000 bail. And we're and getting he just set. Got stacks on stacks on stacks. So, well, you would get the bail back 
I believe, from the last one because he didn't skip bail and run away. I believe. Is that how that works? I believe so. I don't know. Any I know there's like any court bail costs. bondsman. <laughs> I know there's know. like court costs and things that you have to pay when you're convicted, but if it's overturned, I don't know how that all works. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's probably the same five hundred thousand. Not that he didn't have the money to do it anyway, but it's probably the same five hundred thousand dollars. Like you got it back from the last one. Here I'm posting bail again this time. Yeah. And so we're set up for a third trial. So then it's another year and a half, January 14th of 2014, the appellate division for the state of New York allows a change of venue for the third trial because they essentially feel they're not going to be able to get a full impartial jury in the same area because now it's the third trial. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can see too, like, like people that are being interviewed around where he lives and they're like, oh, you know, he's guilty. Right. Yeah. That's like they were talking to you. So then I have not given my opinion yet, (laughs) Michael. Oh, you've given your opinion without giving your opinion. Anyway, so January 22nd of 2015. So a year after the venue has changed, jury selection begins in this third trial. The trial goes on for quite a while. May 15th of 2015, the jury in the third trial deadlocks, forces a mistrial, and now a fourth trial is ordered. That is that I couldn't even I couldn't even imagine being a judge in these types of cases. I would be like, you are going to go back to your rooms. This out. <laughs> you get back in that jury room and you don't come back out yeah. here until you all agree on something. Yeah. Now give each other a hug and tell each other you love each other. <laughs> go. So we move to a fourth trial, and this time, Cal Harris and his defense waive his right to a jury trial Mm -hmm. and elect for a bench trial. Yes, I have opinions on this. I'll reserve my commentary for our debate portion. Sure. Don't let me forget to come back to that. I'm not trying to uh, mansplain anything, (laughs) but just... Just like we were doing with the indictment. There are some terms people might not... So just to be super clear... So obviously, normally it's a jury trial and you're entitled to a jury of your peers that will have to unanimously agree on your Most times. guilt. Right. Yeah. Some states, it doesn't have to be unanimous, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. So usually it's a jury trial. You get a jury of your peers. They make that decision. There is the option, though, to have a bench trial, which is just the judge. Mm-hmm. So it's... The defense, the prosecution, and the judge in the courtroom. The judge hears everything. The judge is able to weigh it. And the judge makes the decision at the end. Right. So that's what the defense elects for when we are moving into this fourth trial. So on March 31st, 2016. So now again, almost a year after the jury deadlocks in the third trial. Opening statements are delivered in the fourth trial to the judge. On April 29th. 2016, the judge allows the defense to argue third-party culpability. So essentially, you're allowed to introduce this evidence that you have found Mm -hmm. that indicates that someone else could be at fault for this. What's interesting here is that this evidence that they're now allowed to present in this fourth trial, they had it Mm -hmm. when they were doing the third trial. But that judge in the third trial ruled that it was not admissible in court. They weren't allowed to present it. Yeah, and I think, and these are Cal's words, that his defense team this time around wasn't just trying to prove that, well, they don't have to prove that he didn't do it. Right. They don't have to. But that not only were they trying to prove that he didn't do it, but they were trying to solve the crime and tell the judge who did do it. Right. Not only is our client innocent, here's who did do this. Yeah, yeah. And they had like one 
specific suspect in mind. Two kind of because they yeah. believe they were kind of involved together. So it's it's these two Texas steel workers who were regulars at Lefties in New York mm-hmm. at the time that Michelle disappeared. Right. And so their names are Stacy Stewart and Chris Thomason. Mm-hmm. And they are friends closely associated. Stacy Stewart is the man that the defense claims was who Kevin Tubbs saw Michelle with at 5.30 a.m. on September 12th. They claim that when Kevin Tubbs saw them, they were arguing. Mm-hmm. So Michelle was arguing with Stacy Stewart. Stacy Stewart has this burn pit on, on his, his property. property where he lived in New York. Right. And in this burn pit, they find a knife blade, a decorative button... A partial shoulder strap, which they argue is a piece of a bra strap. Right. A woman's bathing suit or purse. And I guess it's just the material, essentially. Mm -hmm. They can't really determine which it is. And two fragments of charred fabric. Okay. Did you say earrings? I did not mention the earrings. Were Um, they in the burn pit or were they found somewhere else? I thought that the earrings were somewhere else. I I think that I listed everything that they found specifically in the burn pit. Mm. It's possible. Again, we've said so many times already there's conflicting information everywhere. Mm -hmm. So very possible. But they Um, did find earrings somewhere with one of these two men, I guess, right? Yeah. I remember reading something about earrings. the, The earrings that were found were similar to earrings that she's seen wearing in multiple photographs. Yeah. So just, just that I'd throw that out there. Right. Similar to. All right. They look like them. So Stacy Stewart's ex-girlfriend actually testifies during this fourth trial that mm-hmm. he had told her that he was the last person seen with Michelle alive and that he had also bragged to her that he knew how to hide a body. Mm-hmm. Now... That piece of information that he knew how to hide a body is actually struck from the record by the judge because... Oh my God, I hate that. I hate that. You can't just strike something. When it's in someone's head, it's in someone's head. Well, but here's the thing. You strike I it think all you want. when you're talking about in a bench trial, though, I think a judge oh, is more yeah. able to yeah, say, okay, okay right, right. that's not going to be relevant. You're, like, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. In a jury trial, you can't unring a bell. I think that's... Yeah, you know. pretty much, yeah. So I get that, you know, because they do that all the time on Law and Order and things like that. They still, try to argue for something human. to be struck. Well, the judge is still human, Try's but he may. also can understand, I think, that legalese mm. a little bit better where he basically strikes it from the record because it's hearsay and that it didn't have anything directly to do with Michelle. He didn't reference Correct, Michelle yeah. when he claimed, so, allegedly, that he knew how to hide a body. While we're on the subject of hearsay, because I believe this was in the first trial, but I am unclear, and maybe you know if it was admissible in the fourth trial, especially since he's dismissing these hearsay claims. There was uh, Michelle's hairstylist who said that they testified in one trial. They, they testified in the first trial, the hairstylist, and he or she, I can't remember, said that she had taken a call while she was at the salon from Cal and that he was telling her that she needed to accept the deal and all of that because, like I said, he was offering her that 80000 but For 10 years, yeah. yeah. And what I hadn't mentioned before was that Michelle wanted to force him to have all of his assets appraised, which is going to cost him $30,000 just to get the assets appraised. Right. So the hairdresser is testifying to this conversation that they had on the phone, basically saying, like, Cal was like, I'm going to kill you. Pretty much. Right. So I wonder, was that 
did he testify in the in the fourth trial to this? And did the judge allow it? I mean, I don't know for sure. It wasn't that mentioned. Seems right on par with what this girlfriend is saying. You know, the whole "I know how to hide a body" or "I'm going to kill well, you." But again, the judge does strike that from the record. The mm-hmm. only part of you know her testimony that we've talked about so far was that you know when he claimed he was the last person seen with Michelle alive. There are hearsay exemptions. Mm-hmm. So hearsay doesn't necessarily mean it can't be mentioned in court. There are specific exceptions to hearsay. Like, I know you have, like, outcry witnesses and things like that. Yeah. So I don't know, though, all of the technicalities here because we don't have a ton of in-depth information about this stuff. A lot of hearsay, it seems to me like it's really up, like, it's to the judge's discretion. Well, I think it depends on whether or not the judge feels or that the attorneys can argue If it meets one of the exceptions to hearsay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, I don't know, that's all way above our heads as far as the actual legality of hearsay exceptions. So Let's hope you don't ever get arrested for anything. I'll be up there hearsaying all day long. (laughs) I would never let you testify. So You can't not let me testify. Oh, I absolutely can. Oh my god. We'll argue about this later. Continue. Okay. So, another ex-girlfriend of Stacy Stewart testifies that his friend, Chris Thomason, had told her that the two of them moved back to Texas from New York because of a murder that they were being questioned about. And that he wasn't worried about it anymore because Cal Harris had been found guilty. Yeah. Then, they get Chris Thomason's estranged wife on the stand and she testifies that he told her that Stacy had probably buried Michelle in concrete. Hmm. So a lot of incriminating statements being made by these guys. They tried to get Stacy Stewart and Chris Thomason on the stand, but they refused to cooperate. And obviously, they must have had some way to fight subpoenas. Because you do have subpoena power when you're, even as the defense, you have subpoena power. But these two men refused to cooperate, refused to come in and be on the stand. Maybe that's how they were able to get these three women. I feel like that shouldn't be, probably because they're not on trial. And they have nothing to say in regard to Cal Harris. So, yeah. yeah. So if maybe they had like some information that pertained to the person that was actually on trial, but they're not on trial. They haven't been arrested or convicted or anything like that. So you can't force someone to testify when it really has they're basically just saying these guys did it they're not on trial but that's why this you know yeah because you do even to issue a subpoena you have to be able to make the argument as to why that person would be subpoenaed and all it is is these girlfriends coming up and saying that you know they told me this kind of thing and that's it i would so that's very i mean that's very possible but then it also begs the question why were these if it was the judge has allowed them to bring in this third-party culpability theory. You know, here's this yeah. alternate theory of the crime. These two guys were actually the perpetrators. If they were allowed to bring these three women in, you would think that they would have had grounds to subpoena the two men. Yeah, but the that women may have wanted accusing. to testify. They may have been. Just yeah, but they would still. I believe you still need to be able to make the mm-hmm. argument as to why they would testify because. The prosecution could object to the witness if the witness didn't have anything to offer, which would be the argument against those two men being subpoenaed. We're getting kind of into the weeds. I don't know. These three women testified. The two guys did did not not want to, and they didn't. So I don't blame them. On May 19th of 2016, the closing arguments are given by the defense and the prosecution, and the judge moves toward deliberation. Just a few days later, 
May 24th, 2016, the judge in Cal Harris's fourth trial finds him not guilty. And he can never, ever, ever be tried again. Right. So now, so now double jeopardy applies. And so now Cal Harris cannot be dragged into court again for a fifth trial for this same crime. Right. And I was mentioning just kind of the basics of this case to someone else today because I was taking notes while I'm at work and while I was at the restaurant waiting for you before we had dinner. And someone said, well, what about Double Jeopardy? When I mentioned that he was tried four times. Yeah. And I said, well, he was convicted, but that was thrown out. And then he's convicted again, and that's thrown out. And then there's a mistrial. And Double Jeopardy doesn't apply... Yeah, unless you're acquitted. Until you get to a not guilty verdict or even a conviction that stands. Until you have a ruling that stands before the court. When something's overturned, it's like that never happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know that there's really any way to overturn a not guilty. Like if you didn't meet the burden. These laws seem to be in place more so to protect the innocent party like we we're supposed to be that you know whole innocent until proven guilty right and if you're found and, not guilty if they couldn't prove your guilt yeah, beyond you, a reasonable doubt yeah, you shouldn't have to worry about it again eternity. Yeah, right pretty much yeah so anyway so double jeopardy applies he can't be tried again for michelle's death and again though we should note there is still no body in no, this no case body, no murder weapon no more evidence to my knowledge so officially blood dots and things so officially it's a disappearance. You know, Michelle is missing. Right. She's presumed dead. They wouldn't have tried him four times if mm-hmm. they didn't presume that she that she were dead. But we don't have any hard evidence of that. And the only person that has ever been tried for her murder has been acquitted. Yeah. Now, since then, Cal has been charged with fourth degree stalking. Mm-hmm. And that he's was... A, he's a great guy, that yeah. Cal. So this was in regard to a state police investigator who had been involved in the investigation into Cal Harris and I believe had testified at at least one of the trials. Mm -hmm. And he's charged with fourth degree stalking because he sat in front of this investigator's home for over an hour and during that time said to this investigator, I'm going to get all you guys. How's your son? Maybe I will go drag him out of school. I have been following him around. During this encounter, he also videotapes the investigator's house, property, and vehicles. And what Mm. I saw was that he actually had a dash cam in his car. And so they had footage of everything that he said and everything that he did while he sat in front of this investigator's home for over an hour. Fun. So in June of 2016 is when he is formally charged with the fourth degree stalking. Right. And less than a year later, in February 2017, they add two additional counts to that case. And that's second degree menacing and second degree harassment. And so now he's facing those three. I could not find anything after February of 2017. Yeah, whether or not he Right, as far as any progress on that case. I think it was only, he would have had to serve somewhere between 30 and 90 days in jail for that. Well, yeah, these are all misdemeanors. Yeah. So... Now I'm wondering, is this the same investigator? So after he's finally acquitted and getting into this whole stalking thing, Cal is obviously an incredibly bitter man. And I'm not saying that that's not understandable, but you just can't go around threatening people like that. And you really shouldn't, given that you were just in four separate murder trials, you know, 
being suspected of killing your wife, so you should probably cool it. But there was this investigator, maybe the same one, this female investigator that he was targeting. He said that she was like gung-ho going after him from the very beginning. I don't know if it was the investigator or district attorney. I, have a feel, I think it was the investigator. But I guess her father, the investigator's father, worked for Cal at the dealership. And he was like, and I fired him, so she is mad at me, like kind of thing. Hmm. So he thinks that because he fired her father whenever, how long ago, she's now going to try to get him convicted for murdering his wife. That seems like... It's a bit of a jump. A rational escalation. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And then there's also the fact that Cal has filed civil suits. Yeah, against everybody. Against, like, state police. Like, if you live in New attorney, York, <laughs> <laughs> you might want to check. You check. might want to double check <laughs> yeah. that you haven't had a suit filed against you yeah. by Cal Harris. I feel like you need to put out one of those, like, public service announcements like they do with, like, failed medications and things. Have you been? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but again, couldn't really find anything as far as the outcome or the progress yeah. on those suits. And so that... They probably were dropped. Or either that or he's got so many lawsuits going on that it's probably all just jumbled. It's right. a jumbled mess right now, I would imagine. So that kind of wraps up... Yeah, that brings us to present day. Our twisted tale. Mm-hmm. So I guess I think it's pretty clear. The debate this time is... Did he Did do Cal it? Harris get away with murder? Yeah. So do we... Shall we discuss things or should we just rip the band-aid like you like to say? I say on this one... Let me close my notebook here. I slam it. <laughs> I say on this one, we rip the Band-Aid. Because okay. I feel like I know where you stand. Okay, 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 okay. Let's go with the verdict. Our verdict. Okay, well, I think we're going to agree on the verdict. Verdict. Not guilty. Not guilty. Okay, there we go. There's no opinion? physical evidence. He did it. Okay, I knew he it done, was going to be your opinion. And you know what's going to be really it. funny? Your uh, your brother-in-law listens to this podcast now. Yes. And he was one of the people I had kind of talked a little bit about the basic layout of this mm-hmm. case with. So your brother-in-law was with us at dinner tonight before we came here to record. Mm-hmm. And so I was, was talking he? to him. I didn't a little... notice. <laughs> I wasn't there. You were. I you my were... head buried in my enchiladas. Yeah, I was going to say you were too busy on your phone <laughs> and devouring your enchiladas. But so before you got there, you know, we were talking a little bit about this. He was one of the ones who asked me about double jeopardy. Mm-hmm. And then I said, so, you know, with this one, basically, Heather and I are going to be debating whether or not this guy killed his wife. Telling our secrets. And so your brother-in-law goes, oh, well, Heather's going to think he did it. <laughs> Well, yeah, <laughs> without he did. any, without any evidence, any context. Okay, all he knew was this guy is suspected of killing his wife, and he has tried four times because he's convicted and it's thrown out, convicted, Hold thrown on. out. And your brother-in-law just says, "Oh, well, Heather's going to think he's guilty." Let's she thinks here. he says she thinks everyone's <laughs> guilty. <laughs> okay, but let the record show that just because, like, maybe in my mind or like my feeling is that someone is guilty, doesn't mean. That I can't have a reasonable head about this kind of thing. Well, no, no. I mean, we already kind of got yeah, that out of the way not, because yeah. we both know. But let the record there's a show different burden of proof. But I just want to say he said you Cal were going to think. Harris is not a woman, to my knowledge, and you seem to think that I only think that women are guilty, and that is clearly not it. Because I mean, Michael Peterson definitely killed his wife, <laughs> and so did Cal Harris. <laughs> so, so no, but actually I'm actually surprised. You guys might see in a recurring theme this month. I was going to mention <laughs> that actually. All this month now yeah, we've chose... is going to be husbands accused of murdering their wives. Yeah. So 
ladies and or gentlemen that have husbands, watch yourselves. Be careful. <laughs> the spouse is always the first suspect. <laughs> See, even our podcast has succumbed to the lifetime effect. Pretty much. And we're just going to do four cases this month about husbands being accused of murdering their wives. But I want to just be clear that my opinion has now evolved and I agree with your brother-in-law. You just think everyone is guilty. That is not you true. You are a negative Nelly and you just believe <laughs> everyone who's even suspected of committing a murder did it. Fine. Let's go into the details then on this sure. case. So I guess maybe let's try to go back to the beginning with his behavior. I do think some of his behavior is odd, but kind of like we went over already, in my opinion, they were in the middle of a divorce. They've both stepped out on the marriage. I do think he's a crappy dude for kind of, he really did seem like he was placing the blame on her for well, the Well, in case it seems marriage. like I'm disagreeing with you, I would just like to point out that at the beginning of the episode... I called him a sleaze. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I compared yeah. him to Harvey Weinstein. I'm just trying he to reiterate He is a crappy dude. Point. I yeah, agree. He's, he's crappy. And I, I agree with you there. But I also do agree with you that I wouldn't just say that his behavior is the end-all, be-all. Because I can understand. And another thing I want to I don't out, even think the behavior is suspicious. And everybody makes such a big deal so of it. But it makes sense to me. The only piece that is suspicious to me is not his feelings about her but the fact that like i mentioned they have four children together and he did live with this person for a decade and he does know that she's never done this before and considering that it's the mother of his four children you would think that an upstanding citizen like cal harris at the very least would be concerned that his children's mother hasn't returned home. And even like the one family member had said, he'd be really angry. And from other testimony from other people that he his behavior prior, that this just didn't match up. But do I think it's odd that he wasn't like blubbering like a baby over this? No. I, I think not. that he is bitter. I think he feels scorned and he mm -hmm. feels betrayed. And again, never said he was father of the year. I don't mm -hmm. think he's putting those kids first in his mind. Mm -hmm. And he had a lot of negative feeling toward her that made it difficult to have any type of an emotional reaction to it. And if you're not putting those kids first, he's a selfish individual. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff that, that points in that direction, mm -hmm. that he's very selfish and very self-centered. He was his number one concern. Now, one of the things that kind of points me to his guilt in regard to the whole divorce situation, again, this is just a feeling, this isn't evidence, and this might get me into some hot water for giving my opinion about this, but this is how I feel. In no way, shape, or form, let me say, do I think that anyone in Michelle Harris's case deserves to be murdered, especially Michelle Harris. In no way, shape, or form am I saying she brought this on herself or she deserves to be murdered. I've heard many cases like this where men, or, or whomever, it could be a woman, typically, though, it, it is the male, especially if it's the male that is the breadwinner, I guess, where they feel backed into a corner, where they're going to lose a huge chunk or the majority of their assets and their children and their home. And I'm not saying that I think it's right. Obviously not. I would never condone it. And he's a sleazebag. But I do understand why he may have snapped like many other men in his scenario. Yes, I get that. Whether or not he deserved it because of his behavior inside the marriage, I don't know. Her part that she played in all of this, I don't know. I don't know who's at fault for the downfall of their marriage. I would imagine both of them are at fault in some aspects. But I definitely could see that he's the type of person that he felt backed into a corner. She wasn't accepting to 
our knowledge, not accepting his offers and things like that. And it was a lot of money. And he wanted his children. I don't know if whether or not he actually did offer it, but I don't know. I don't, I, I don't think he would have felt backed into a corner. I just don't see it because everything that we have, I mean, indicates mm-hmm. that this man is insanely wealthy. Yeah. I don't think that there is any dollar amount that's going to concern him. I think it might have. She wanted to have all of his assets appraised, which would lead me to believe that she thinks she's entitled to half of it. And it was stated that, and I can't remember by who, but that Cal did not want her to take any part of his business, like as, like the money he got from his business. That was his family business. But she could very well have been entitled to it. Because well, I don't think... any earnings he made while they were married, if they don't have a prenup, that's hers. But I think in most cases, as far as actual losing part of the business i don't think that she would be entitled to that not the business itself but but that would be the concern because he's going to be able to make any money that he's going to lose he's going to be able to make back if he retains the business and it's a family business he didn't start it they didn't start it together she didn't work for the business you know there she she didn't really have no she as an employee not like not running the business with him. Not she trying wasn't... to take the business from him, but but that still would be the only to, way to be concerned is you're going to lose a piece of your of his, business. His assets, though. But I don't. She may think... not have an entitlement to the business, but she could certainly have entitlement to the money he's made since then. Because well, the money that he's made while they're a couple, yeah, she in most places would be entitled to half of. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that he's going to be concerned about that. Yeah, but then additionally, because if he retains the business, assets... which I believe that he would, he's not going to be concerned about any dollar amount he's going to give her and Mm -hmm. i believe based on what the sources i was able to find that it was an offer by him for her to have custody of all four of the children that came directly out of his mouth right and i believe that Mm -hmm. i don't think that he was worried about losing these children as i just said very self-centered very selfish i don't think he really cared and i really do think that he could have cared about the money because Let's just say that she wasn't in it to take the business, and I'm not saying that she was, but she just wasn't agreeing to a deal, pretty much, until the very last minute when he claims that he made this offer and that she, whatever. But if she's wanting to have absolutely everything he owns appraised, all of his assets and everything, that's going to contribute to how much money he's going to, one, pay in child support, two, alimony. That's going to make those numbers go way, way up. Maybe she felt she was entitled to more. I don't know. But I don't think he's going to be concerned about those dollar amounts. Well, I, I just I don't, don't see it. Actually said outright i know we both said not guilty do you not think he did it i do not think that he did it okay so you're you're definitely on the other side of this like not even yeah. like okay i do not think that he did this so not even in the middle you just don't think it was him no i do not okay so we've gotten past his behavior gotten past the divorce oh we forgot something else that i think again this all goes into the thing that i said that just because he didn't really care for her anymore doesn't mean that you know he did something but he did have a garage sale within two weeks of her disappearance. He didn't have to care about her things, but having a garage sale two weeks, two weeks after someone is gone kind of makes me think you don't think they're coming back. Crappy dude doesn't mean he killed her. Right. Let's see what else. And this is, is again, there? this is that lifetime effect that I keep talking about because if maybe he already planned on having a garage sale. Yeah. The one thing that confuses me though, and why I definitely, there are a ton of reasons why I would say not guilty. In fact, I can't, I can't even believe that this went to a first trial. I can't believe that he was indicted. Right. It baffles me. It truly does. Just because my gut feeling is saying like, oh yeah, I think he did it. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Well, that's because that I think that there's a ton of emotion wrapped into yeah. this. Yeah. And I think people were very invested in it because they're a recognizable mm-hmm. couple 
in the community. Yeah. And I think that they wanted someone to be held responsible for it. I've heard it referred to as also like the Scott Peterson effect, where a lot more people lately especially are saying that Scott Peterson shouldn't have been convicted, but everyone can agree that he was a scumbag of the century. And just because he was an absolute scumbag, you want to convict him. Right. And and Cal that's Harris, why like, I feel like he just gives me that icky feeling like, oh, you definitely did something to your wife. But there is no evidence. I will totally admit that. There is no evidence. There's some really weird stuff that went on. And his behavior is crappy. But a few blood droplets in the kitchen and garage that she lived in. Well, and I believe... I didn't jot this down. It was only in one of the shows I was able to watch that covered the case. But I think it was a total of 10 blood droplets yeah, and only between three the kitchen of them and garage. Hers or something right. like that. Yeah. The rest were the dogs. So. Yeah, I think that's. With absolutely no physical evidence. evidence. And we've never even found a body. No, there's no body. Do I think that it's super likely that she just took off and vanished? When, by all accounts, she was this very mm. loving and caring mother? No. Yeah, I But is it possible? Yeah. Is it possible, though, that she's still out there somewhere? Maybe that even if it's not her disappearing, was she taken? Right. For us to not have a body, I just don't believe that she died there on that day. If she was abducted, we know that the statistics say mm-hmm. after this long, she has probably passed away she has probably been killed yeah i would imagine especially because she was fighting for her kids you know what i mean right she wasn't just gonna she was just gonna up and leave them and And i haven't really heard anybody make the argument that she just took off no but i'm just saying like are these things all possibilities yeah and at the very least at the very least she'd be getting eight hundred thousand dollars at the very least right from cal and if he's correct that he did offer her the kids, she would be getting her kids. So she really had, she had the, she was kind of getting to the point where she was getting the upper hand in this divorce. So her upping and leaving seems odd to me. And I definitely would not think in a million years that she went into New York City. I don't think that she she would have gone there, especially like who pulls in now... I think maybe a lot of people might think, well, how did he not see her car in the driveway? The driveway is like insanely long. We already said this. This it's is a like 250 a acre that he estate. Yeah. But the way, like, if you look at how her car would have been parked, who would you don't you don't just leave your car at the end no. of some driveway with the keys inside? But and to go, me, oh, hey, I'm going to leave now. To like, me, that lines up with what Kevin Tubbs says that he saw, yeah. which was her arguing with someone mm-hmm. near the foot of the driveway. Now his thoughts. I'm not saying that I am totally against uh, like her being taken. Kevin Tubbs, if you're not going to testify right away, don't do it at all. I mean, this is ridiculous. Like, you're dealing with people's lives. Yeah, but I do and think... And even though Cal Harris is a scumbag, you're dealing with his life. Well, because- but he did come forward once he knew something. I do think there was so much going on, you know, that day in particular... Really? I don't know. You don't know how closely. But there was so much in the news leading up. But to we it. don't know how closely Kevin Tubbs follows the news. Yeah, but they were he neighbors. happened. He happened to grab a day old newspaper. I guess and it just saw seems that so... it says the last time she is seen is September eleventh, okay. and he goes, "Wait a minute, I saw her early that morning on September twelfth. So that's yeah. not that's not right. That doesn't jive with me because." 
he remembered and or knew enough for that to stick out to him in a newspaper article six years after the fact but the months and years leading up to the trial he never once saw him in the news or anything like that or felt the need to come forward he may have seen stuff about cal but not heard the only information that really triggered something with him something he had knowledge of they were neighbors, was that though. she was last seen on september 11th and he goes no i saw her september 12th this, but this wasn't some random bystander he knew them Kevin Tubbs knew this family, and he lived there. But if not you don't on, know, not on the compound, but he was a neighbor. If I mean, you don't know that the belief is she was killed on September 11th, that they believe she was killed, you know, late that night mm-hmm. and was never seen again, you don't know that it's relevant that you saw her arguing with someone the morning of September 12th. If he would have known, if he would have heard that she was killed September 11th, that. That's the part that stood out. No, no. I'm saying if he didn't know that that was what they were saying. You know that there's this investigation and then this trial because she was murdered. Mm -hmm. But if you don't hear specifically September 11th and then realize, no, 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 I saw her the next day. I don't know. It's not going to stick out to you that she was arguing with some guy you've never seen before. Okay, look, I know that we're into true crime like this is the what we're into and like what we do now but i think just genuinely if your neighbor is one missing and two assumed to be to have been murdered you haven't read a newspaper you haven't looked at an internet article you haven't talked to anybody around town you haven't none of that we can't judge how somebody who is not a true crime addict like we are would react to any of this I don't know. Stuff. I think it's... it's. I'm just telling you, in my eyes, it's really hard to believe that this man went five years before he noticed anything. I And I understand where you're coming from, but I yeah, think it would be awesome just as difficult... That and his testimony wasn't super great. He saw a black and or blue truck, someone that might have looked like someone. It could have been Michelle. It but I think it would little... be just as difficult for someone who isn't a fan of true crime or interested in it the way we are mm-hmm. to understand why we would spend so much time researching this and digesting it also don't think that after someone has been convicted of murder i'm not saying that he rightfully was or what the evidence was but he was convicted in that first trial and for the judge to just have thrown it out like that you had a jury that listened to all of the evidence that was collected that convicted him i think that the judge should have waited until the appeal i don't think that he should have just thrown it out right there at the sentencing it seems odd to me but we're not the judge we can't find all of the information from inside of that courtroom during that trial. Yeah. The judge felt that what Kevin Tubbs and his mother had to say at the sentencing hearing mm-hmm. was enough that he did not have confidence in the verdict that was reached in that first trial. And yeah. we really can't make any, you know, we can't ask any specific questions or really find any fault in that mm-hmm. because we don't have the information. I'm not saying that we can't ask questions of judges or the judicial system. But in this particular case, we don't have the information. Yeah. Well, that's another thing, too, that kind of is like I try to have faith also in the juries that we obviously don't have all the information They have clearly been given way more information than you and I can find on the internet or through these things. Right. They had enough information they felt to convict this man. But they didn't have this other information. But they didn't have this other information. In the the second trial, they did, and still convicted. In the second trial, though, they did not have the information that the photographs that were being used to proffer 
forensic Mm -hmm. expert evidence had been altered. And again, that is enough to call into question the verdict that's reached in that case. I I understand the appeal. Because do you believe that that Dr. Henry Lee, had he known that these were altered to make the red brighter, would have testified, this is fresh blood? No, and I believe that he said that. Like, no, 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 this is... This is why I testified. But that's what I'm saying. So they didn't have that information. I'm not saying that it shouldn't have been appealed the second time. And like I've said so many times, I agree that with the evidence I can find, I don't understand how he was convicted. But I am saying that we're clearly missing some evidence because you don't just convict someone based on the fact that three blood droplets could be two to three days old. No, I think, well, I think that not, but it's not so much that we're missing evidence as that we already know of the evidence that the jury was missing. Mm-hmm. And that was enough to tip the balance back away just, from a conviction. There must be some more evidence. There's no way that we have seen it all. But but in any case, I still... Well, I'm sure there's other stuff. There's also going to be witness testimony. I'm sure they yeah. have a lot of circumstantial evidence that probably made this blood evidence seem mm-hmm. a lot more substantial. And we don't have access to that. But yeah. we also know that the jury in the first trial didn't have access to Kevin Tubbs statement Mm -hmm. that he saw Michelle Harris the morning of September 12th. And we know that those first two juries did not have the information that these photographs had been altered Mm -hmm. and improved before they were used for that testimony. Now, I don't know if because you think that he's innocent, if you had another suspect in mind, but as far as Cal Harris is concerned, he does have a suspect that he's been fingering and that's the Stacy. Stacey Stewart. Yeah. That he and his defense team basically used as his, for lack of a better word, scapegoat in the last trial. But if we look at the evidence that we have available to us as far as Cal Harris being Mm -hmm. guilty or Stacey Stewart being guilty, there's, we've already said there's almost nothing that we know of for Cal. So it's not difficult to have more on somebody else, but yeah. there is more against Stacey Stewart. I feel like there's nothing against any of these people who have been mentioned. I don't know. The stuff that they found in this and burn pit at Stacey Stewart's property raises some eyebrows. Yeah, but none I'm of not it saying is, that's enough to convict either, but, they but there hasn't tied been... Any, they haven't tied any of those physical pieces of evidence to Michelle Harris. That right. was stated outright. They found some questionable things, but I mean... But there's more questionable stuff there... Than they have against Cal. I don't know. I feel I'm like not saying it's enough to around, convict yeah. Stacey Stewart, but yeah. I think he should be seriously and looked at. There should be a better investigation yeah. into him. Listening to Stacey Stewart for the two f- minutes that he maybe had of airtime on a documentary, he he was believable to me. Like, that's the feeling. I'm not saying that he couldn't be acting or whatever, or that the stuff he was saying was true, but he's not telling all of it kind of thing. He definitely seemed way less scummy than Cal Harris and way more believable. (laughs) I don't think that's difficult either. Yeah, what I wanted to touch on, kind of going hand in hand with decisions that were made in the courtroom, the first one being the Stacy choosing not to testify. I don't blame him. Oh, no, I I don't blame him either. First of all, if like if I have nothing to do, even if like, let's just say he did kill her. First of all, I sure as hell am not getting up on that stand in a like in a trial that's not against me. I don't want to insert myself anywhere, anywhere in this crime at all. I would definitely do all I could to not testify. If you're not being compelled to testify in this type of a situation, you absolutely do not testify. Because even if they just force you to plead the fifth Mm -hmm. on some insignificant piece of information, 
they've got you. Yeah. And I mean, he doesn't have to cl- he doesn't have to plead for his innocence. He he doesn't have to. He's not on trial. He has not been charged. He's the, not being tried, right? The other decision that was made that I also agree with was on the part of Cal Harris. I am surprised that he didn't choose a bench trial sooner. I think given the lack it of was, evidence, it was the perfect move by the defense to do that in the fourth trial. I don't know if it was the perfect move any earlier than that because they needed the combination of everything that they were able to find out during those first three trials I really think to be able to put that to a judge and know for certain that a judge would not be able to find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. You need the combination of Kevin Tubbs's testimony that mm. contradicts the prosecution's argument that she was killed on September 11th. You need the information that those photographs had been altered before that testimony was given. I think that's the only piece of information you need. And you need these items found in the burn pit that, at the very least, provide some reasonable doubt and some suspicion in the direction of someone else. I honestly think that a bench trial probably would have even been better in the first one, and this is why. I really feel like the only compelling piece of evidence that there is, because it's the only piece of physical evidence, is the photos of the droplets. And even so, that's only one piece of physical evidence that suggests that the blood is fresh. But that doesn't point to murder as well. And I think any judge could have seen that. There was absolutely no physical evidence. They didn't even need this burn pit stuff. They don't even need eyewitness testimony. They didn't need that. And even if the photos had stayed in there, being a judge, I'd be like, you got got three droplets of blood and you want me to convict a man? Right. But hindsight hindsight is 20-20. But they knew by the time they get to this fourth trial... Everything that they already had, and they had had enough information to overturn two convictions and get a mistrial in the third. Um, They knew now we for sure have enough that this judge won't be able to convict. There's no way to find this man guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Here's the reason. There's enough reasonable doubt in the fact that two convictions have been overturned and a mistrial in the third trial. Mm -hmm. That enough on its own to give you reasonable doubt as to this man's guilt. Yeah. I mean, my final thoughts are that if I were a juror, and again, I don't know 100% of the evidence they were given. Based on what we have. Based on what I have, I would have to say not guilty, but I would feel icky about it. I would feel medically icky. That's the term we use. Right. (laughs) And that's, Um, yeah, those are, that's how I feel. I have this gut feeling that he did it. I can't say for certain but I don't think he should have been convicted. I don't think he should have been indicted. If I were sitting on a jury, I would also have to vote not guilty. I don't think that I would feel as icky about it mm. because I just think everything that they have that even kind of leans toward Cal Harris being guilty, I, I just find so much fault in the reasoning and the perspective that's used there. Because most of it is his behavior, his reaction, what he did and didn't do. And I think, based on what we know about him as a person and what we know about their divorce, I just think that it was normal behavior for that type of person in that type of situation. Is it normal in general? No. Mm. So I'm not trying to argue that, but for this type of person, 
under that set of circumstances, I think it makes sense. I don't think it's suspicious. Right. So I guess are we ready to wrap up the case then? There's one more piece of information that we're going to give because this is technically, I think, the only missing persons case we've done because she hasn't been confirmed dead. Right. So I'm just going to go ahead and give some information here. So the victim in this case, her name is Michelle Ann Harris. She's been missing since September 11, 2001. She's missing from Owego, New York. Uh, she is a white female. She has blonde hair, brown eyes. She's about five foot two, weighs about 100 pounds, 35 at the time of her disappearance. Uh, she was wearing her work uniform, which consisted of khaki shorts, white sneakers, and a gold and silver Rolex watch. Um, she had multiple rings, bracelets, and earrings, uh, and necklaces. And she had a navy blue polo shirt. It has a collar with red stripes and white stripes. And she also has a, a flame tattoo. They don't have any pictures of this, but she has a like sun flames on her right ankle. Um, if you know anything about her or have seen her, you can call the New York State Police at 607-687-3961 because she's technically, uh, technically still missing. And at this point, she would be 55 years old. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's, uh, that's about all that. I do think it is important to say that all four of the Harris children um, think their father is innocent. So and they were incredibly young. And right. it is, I mean, it is fair to say that obviously since he's cut ties with her family that they're getting all of the information mostly from their father. But, well, they did have periods of time where they live with other people. He was imprisoned, but. Yeah, because he'd yeah. spent a total of three years in prison, I think. Something like that, yeah. He, he made bail all those other times, so he had only been sitting in there during his conviction. But, yeah, so that's, uh, that's that then, right? Yeah, so, um, yeah, please, if you have any information, mm-hmm. please reach out to that number. Yeah, if you see her walking around. But that's uh, all we've got for you tonight. Tune in next week while we debate whether or not another husband has killed his wife. Heather will think he did. I don't know. I don't know how I'll feel I yet. I don't know yet. We'll see. I, I already know what you'll say. Listen, I kept my wits about me and didn't just jump to say he was guilty. No, but you did jump to say that he did it. I mean, hey, he's a crappy dude. He should probably just go away anyway. I mean, I'm sure there's other stuff we could put him away for. I just don't think he did this. <laughs> yeah, all right, guys. So don't forget to rate review subscribe is that what you say you say the outro it's your turn go no no we're, i mean we're good rate review subscribe you said it they oh. do all the things yeah okay, yeah all the things great and we already uh we plug our socials at the top of every show so they've already got that yep yep you already threw our email address in there Tried. well made me <laughs> throw it in there because you didn't know what I tried. it was <laughs> it's that allegedly podcast Cast at at gmail.com. <laughs> yikes it's fine so uh that's all we've got for you this week yep we will be back Next week. See you then. Bye, guys. Bye.